Good morning again. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. This morning, Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. Last week, we saw the unfolding of events that would soon lead to the death of Jesus. Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' chosen 12 disciples, enacted his plans to betray Jesus, leading a crowd of religious leaders and Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus in the quiet garden of Gethsemane under the cover of night. And we saw last week that this was done in an effort to control Jesus. The religious leaders wanted to show control over Jesus to influence the crowds. The Romans wanted to show control over Jesus as a display of their power. Judas wanted to show control over Jesus as a means of pursuing his own greedy expectations. We even saw Peter trying to take control with a sword, attacking a guard. Yet we saw at every turn... Even as his disciples turned and ran away, that Jesus was fully and completely in control. And now at this point, Jesus has about 15 hours to live. In fulfillment of the prophecy centuries before by the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, 7 through 8, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Now in today's passage, we're going to see the first stage of the Lamb of God being led to slaughter, and how oppressive his judgment truly was. We're going to see the cowardice of the religious leaders. Jesus will be placed under trial. He will be unlawfully condemned to death. He will be spit on, mocked, and struck with fists. And he will take it all silently. Yet as he is condemned, Jesus will give a confession and a warning that not only not only defines who he was as the Christ, but raises a question that still echoes to us today. So let's look at it. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent, made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, 
the Son of the Blessed. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do you need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Verse 53 says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Okay, so what's going on here? In the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, God organizes his people, the Hebrews, whom he just rescued from slavery in Egypt. God was establishing order and justice and rule for his people who had none. And in Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20, it says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of righteousness. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So God gave his people, under his rule and authority, a civil structure for ethics and justice. And the Israelite people obeyed. They established such a structure and a system, yet as we will see over time, this ethical system of justice became anything but. And so Mark's words here, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, refers to something called a Sanhedrin. Now, a Sanhedrin meaning sitting together. This was normatively a council of 23 men that was established in any town that had at least 120 households. And each Sanhedrin served kind of as a local authority in the city. It was like a court. Now, the Sanhedrin, or the Supreme Court of Israel, was in Jerusalem, where the temple was. And this great Sanhedrin, as it was known, the one that we're dealing with here consisted of 71 members, including the high priest, who was the head of the council, and then 70 other delegates from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now, one of the main functions of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem was to serve as a go-between between Israel and Rome. Now, this was already kind of sketchy. Because true, faithful Israelites wanted nothing to do with the occupying Romans and avoided them at all costs. The Sanhedrin, however, cozied up to Rome because they liked the perks. Having the ear of Rome gave them a sense of power. They gave the Sanhedrin a seat at the table with the Roman authorities who wielded the sword that they couldn't wield. Sometimes it even lined their pockets with some extra cash. You know, though the the Jews and the Romans were at odds, the Sanhedrin worked to make those odds a little more favorable. 
Now, for the sake of ethics and justice, the Sanhedrin had to operate by a certain list of rules. And among them, one, trials could only be held in public during daylight hours. This was to ensure ethical transparency. But two, the Sanhedrin was to always meet on the temple grounds when holding court. They had a place called the Chamber of Hewn Stone in the north part of the temple, which was the official place for them to judge any offense. Now three, anyone accused of a crime or offense was given adequate opportunity and time to mount a defense for themselves or to gather witnesses. Fourth, no charge could be substantiated against someone but by the testimony of two to three witnesses, and those witnesses had to agree. This comes from Deuteronomy 19.15. Now, fifth, when the death penalty was involved, Jewish law said that between the pronouncement of the verdict and the verdict being carried out, the Sanhedrin had to allow at least one full day. This was to fast, and to pray, and, and to, to reflect, even to seek further testimony. This was to ensure justice, to make sure that no decision was just made rashly. The sixth, because of this necessary day of fasting, trials bearing the death penalty could not happen during Passover, because the Passover itself was a feast. When they could not fast. Okay, so these were the Sanhedrin's own laws that they were to operate under to ensure ethics and justice. Yet as we see, they broke every single one of them in the way that they tried Jesus. Look at verse 54. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Okay, so first we learn that the Sanhedrin came together, not during the day, but in the middle of the night, right after they had arrested Jesus on the Passover, violating rules number one, three, and six. Now second... We learned that instead of going to the temple where their trials were supposed to take place, they went to the high priest's house, to his courtyard, violating rule number two. The high priest at the time was named Caiaphas. And whereas high priests were only supposed to serve about four years, Caiaphas served 18 years. And it wasn't because he was such a great high priest. The entire priestly system had degenerated into corruption and was run more like a mob family than anything. And, and the godfather of this high priestly mob family was a man named Annas, who had served as high priest many years prior. Now in John's gospel, we learned that they actually took Jesus to Annas first, not because he had any legal authority or position, but to show him their trophy and to get his blessings on the proceedings. 
But John also tells us that Caiaphas, the current high priest, was Annas's son-in-law. And the only reason that Caiaphas, the son-in-law, was high priest at this time was because Annas's five sons had already held the office. Now, this family was in control of all the proceedings of the temple, including the money changing and the sale of the sacrificial animals in the court of the Gentiles. Okay, now, if you recall, just a few days earlier, Jesus had gone into the temple, tossed over the tables of the money changers, chased out the sacrificial animals that the priests were selling for financial gain, and rebuked the religious leaders who were running the system. Okay, that would have been Annas' system that he instituted as the family boss and had Caiaphas run as the temple high priest. So Jesus had messed with a powerful enemy. He hadn't just crossed any rabbi or priest. He'd insulted Vito Corleone. And if you haven't seen that movie, neither have I. It's okay. If you do, watch it on VidAngel. It cuts out all the bad stuff. It'll be about 20 minutes long. (laughs) But I digress. Mark also tells us that Peter followed Jesus, which, which again is noble, right? Just as he had tried to attack Malchus, the high priest's servant in the Garden of Gethsemane, we want to give Peter the benefit of the doubt. At least he's trying, right? But notice that Mark says Peter did indeed follow Jesus at a distance. Peter was sort of noble kind of putting himself in harm's way. But he was going to do so at a distance. He wasn't going to actually say or do anything. He was, he was more there for moral support. But of course, next week, we will see what happens to Peter by that fire as he is warming himself. But in verse 55, Mark jumps back to this farce of a trial that is taking place at the home of Caiaphas. Again, not in the temple, not in the chamber of hewn stone, which was the law, but at the high priest's house. And not during the day, which was the law, but in the dead of night. Also, not during any regular day, which was the law, but during the Passover. Every aspect of this religious trial was shady, illegal, corrupt, and unjust. Look at verse 55. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So Mark says they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. In the Greek, this seeking testimony is the word zetian, which always carries a negative connotation. Okay? They were not just seeking information. They were trying to dig up mud on Jesus. But as Mark says, they found none. 
Okay, don't skip over this too quickly. Had Jesus sinned? Had he truly been trying to lead a revolt? Or had he abused his power in any way, there would have been a charge. And they would have found it. Yet no official charge or credible evidence could be brought against Jesus. So as a result, these religious leaders resort to inciting the people to break the ninth commandment. Which says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. But rather, Mark says, many bore false witness against him. Mark even gives an example. Some said, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I'll build another not made with hands. Now, was that true? Did Jesus really say that? Well, semi, sort of, not really. In John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And in response, in verse 20 through 22, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So did Jesus say that he would destroy the temple? No. He said they would destroy the temple. Meaning they were going to kill him. The Christ, God, the Son, the true and better temple. But in three days he would be raised up. Jesus was predicting the very things that were now taking place. And that was the best they could come up with. Twisting some words that didn't even constitute a crime, but might make Jesus look bad. And even then they couldn't get their witnesses to agree. Breaking rule number four. So despite their greatest efforts, the religious leaders came up with nothing against Jesus. Verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify about you? But he remained silent and made no answer. So getting desperate, Caiaphas, the high priest, stands up and since they can't bring anything credible against Jesus, tries to get Jesus to incriminate himself. Yet Jesus makes no answer. One, because there has been no credible accusation to address. But two, Jesus refuses to fight this caving straw man that they've built. Verse 61, but he remained silent and made no answer. Jesus would not give this mockery of a trial, any degree of credence or legitimacy. But also notice this, and this is important. At this point, Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 whoa. Look, 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 guys, I think we have a big misunderstanding here. I'm, I'm just a teacher. 
I'm just a social justice advocate. I'm just sharing a, a message of love and peace, you know, positive and encouraging. That, that's me. You've got this all wrong. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus in no way tries to prevent this situation from moving forward. Jesus doesn't backtrack here. Even bound and standing before the religious leaders, Jesus is fully in control. Jesus knows, Jesus has, and Jesus is the truth. He knew exactly why he was truly being condemned. And finally, in verse 60, he forces them to say it. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of God? Okay, finally, this was the right question. This question was the only valid part of this whole charade. In fact, what Caiaphas asks is the central question of Mark. Is Jesus the Christ? From Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. To Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 29, which is the linchpin passage in all of Mark's book. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. This is the confession at the heart of Mark's gospel. This is the confession that sent Jesus to Jerusalem. And this is the confession that Jesus had even been keeping close within the circle until the appropriate time. And now he finally lets it loose. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Verse 62, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Okay, this is the only time that Jesus gives a response. And as he does so, Jesus gives both a declaration and a warning. His declaration is, I am. Invoking those same words he had used in Gethsemane. From Exodus 3.14, I am Yahweh, the very covenant name of God with his people. I am the Christ, Jesus said. Church, don't ever let anyone try to tell you that Jesus never claimed to be the Christ or God in the flesh. But Jesus endured many false accusations, but upon this ray of truth, he stood steeled, said, yes, 
I am the Christ, the Son of God, the rescuer who has come for his own. But Jesus didn't stop there. Alongside that declaration, Jesus also gives the religious leaders a very stern warning. He says, I am the Christ, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus' words would have been very clear to his Old Testament hearers. Jesus was calling all of the Old Testament and the prophets to testify to himself. The term son of man comes from a prophecy about the Christ in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. that says, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, who is God the Father, and was presented before him. The words you will see point to a prophecy from Isaiah regarding the Christ. In Isaiah 52, 8, For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. The words seated at the right hand of power come from Psalm 110, verse 1, a Christ-centric prophecy that Jesus addressed earlier, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the words, and coming with the clouds of heaven, alluded obviously to Daniel 7.13, but also directly to Jesus' second coming, in which he will come, as Revelation 1.7 says, with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. But Jesus takes his hearers from the fulfilled prophecies of his first coming to a prophecy of his second coming, the one that we still await. But Jesus' second coming, as he says, will look quite different. The first time he came as a little baby hidden in Bethlehem, next time he will come as a warrior king from heaven for all to see. Revelation 19. The first time he came humbly and with an invitation. Next time, Revelation 20, he will come fiercely and with judgment. Jesus is clearly telling this mocking group of religious leaders that though he stands before them now... Under their judgment, a day is coming when they will stand before him under his. And this was a bold move. And the religious leaders were having none of it. At this, the high priest tore his garments, a sign of great indignation and intense emotion. And he yelled out, what further witnesses do we need? And Caiaphas accused Jesus of blasphemy for claiming to be God. Verse 64, they all condemned him as deserving death. And note, note even this, even in this they're displaying the limits of their own power. They could not condemn him to death, but could condemn him only as deserving death. And so now, it was time to take Jesus to the Romans. 
to finish the job. Verse 65. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So in celebration of their own declaration, the religious leader's mockery of a trial turns violent. Their indignation turns into bloodlust. In the high priest's courtyard, in the middle of the Passover night, what God instituted in Deuteronomy as a dignified, just, and God-honoring court in Israel, now soaked in the filth of human greed, descended into Lord of the Flies chaos as the religious leaders and the temple guards turn into animals. And they spit on him which in Jewish, Jewish culture was the most degrading form of insult you could give. They covered his face and they hit him. A further exercise of their great bravery and their control. They mocked him saying, prophesy. In mockery of the very one that the whole Old Testament had prophesied about. And the guards received him with blows. And Jesus took it. In Mark 10, verses 33 through 34, Jesus told the disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Everything was taking place exactly as Jesus said it would. And why? Because by his sacrifice, everything that Jesus came to do was going to be done. Jesus was going to lay his life down on the cross to save broken, sinful people, just like these same religious leaders who accused him. Just like these same disciples who abandoned him. Just like these same temple guards who spit on him. By his own accord, Jesus was going to be the willing sacrifice for their sins. Church, Jesus was not killed because he was too nice. Or because he broke social norms. Jesus was killed because of his confession and his call. I am the Christ. I am God the rescuer who has come to save you from your sin. Therefore, you must repent and believe. That's why the people hated Jesus. That's why the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. They did not want to repent. They did not want to believe. They wanted things according to their own way. They trusted themselves. 
And so they killed the one who stood in their way. The Christ. The Son of God, the Blessed. And you know that same confession... And that same call that sent Jesus to the cross still echoes to us today. Jesus, are you the Christ? Verse 62, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. How then will you respond to this? Will you repent? Turning from your sinful life of self and the ways of this world? Will you believe, trusting that Jesus is God the Son, that his way is always right, that it is true, it is the only way, and it is your way by the power of God the Spirit? And we would be wise to heed Jesus' warning that just as he came the first time, he is coming again. And when he does, he will not stand trial. We will. And God will be our judge. And his judgment will not be based on whether we were good enough or smart enough or religious enough. His judgment will be based on that same confession. Is Jesus the Christ? Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your king? Is he your rescuer? Or intentional or not, do you still hold to your own sin? Your own pathway of rebellion against the God who made you? Have you surrendered your life to him? Every part of it. Having received his kind, gracious, and loving mercy. Have you received this invitation to lay down your arms and to run to God your father. Who has made the way for your rescue. By paying the penalty for your sins. Through the sacrificial blood of Jesus shed on the cross. According to his own power and will. Do you surrender to him? Or do you still believe that you stand in judgment over him? That you get to decide what to do with Jesus? That you are in control? You can seek witnesses to discredit him. Technicalities to obscure him. The shadows of this world to slither around him. But you still must answer this question. Is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God? And friend, hear him again say definitively today, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Let's pray. Oh God, today we 
hold before us through your word two very real realities. One, that you have come just as you said you would. That we might be forgiven of our sins. Having our infinite penalty paid by the infinite blood of Jesus Christ through the cross. We thank you and we praise you that you came. That you give this invitation to us to turn from ourselves, to turn from the ways of this world and to trust you. No matter who we are, what we've done, what our background is, it doesn't matter. Jesus, you call us to come to you. To lay down our lives. Because you came to us. But God, we also have before us the reality that you are coming again. Yeah, I pray that that brings us joy. That we do know you, that we do trust you, and we have our faith in you, that we look forward to seeing you face to face as you destroy evil and make all things new, just as you have said you would. But God, I know that there are many in this world, perhaps many in this room, who think of that reality and it is not a joy. It is a fright. Because they are not trusting you. They are not turning from their sin. God, when you stand in judgment over them, they do not know what answer they will give to you. So God, I pray that today would be a day of salvation. That you would draw people to yourself. That you would bring dead people to life today. So that they too may look forward in great anticipation of your return. Having laid down their lives, living for you in the here and now. With full security that they will live with you forever after. Jesus, we ask you to do it because only you can. It's your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.